Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We welcome all of you. And for those of you joining online, I'm just so glad you're with us this morning. So I want to start off today by sharing a story with you guys. So back in 2018, I went to this event called Quest. It's a leadership retreat that they hold for students in the Nazarene Church, and it takes place at ENC every couple of years. The purpose of this weekend was to learn different leadership skills like communication, delegation, trust, all those sorts of things. But from the very moment that we arrived on campus, we were just thrust into different activities with this group of people who we hadn't even met before. And one of the activities we did over this weekend was a trust fall from a ladder. So you can see up there, this is the activity that we did. This isn't our specific group. Um, but some of us were from higher rungs, lower rungs, whatever. Um, and in this activity, it was imperative that every single person knew their job and did their part. We could not have done this activity without a group of people, right? It would be crazy if I had tried to catch one of our adult leaders falling from a ladder. I'd have probably been crushed, and whoever was falling probably wouldn't be in great condition either. But I wonder how often we approach our world like that. How often do we stand under the ladder, alone, trying to catch all that's coming at us and feeling hopeless when we can't? How often do we watch the news and as headline after headline falls, our hopelessness grows? How often do we sit and feel overwhelmed by the world, shaking our heads and thinking, God, where are you? Well, I think sometimes when we get to that place, we look out to our world and we settle for the hope that someday everything will be better. We think, thank you, God, for a heaven where someday there will be no more tears and no more pain. And that hope is a good hope for us but it's an incomplete picture of the gospel. The I'll be in heaven someday hope is a tamed version of a wild and reckless world-transforming gospel that says restoration is also something for here and now. So today I want us to remember that God's vision for his church is that we would be a restorative presence in a hurting world. So today I'm going to be reading from Amos chapter 5. So if you'd like to read along with me, I'd invite you to find your way to Amos chapter 5 in your Bibles or Bible apps. We're going to start reading in verse 21. Now this is the word of the Lord to the Israelites centuries ago, but it's still the word of the Lord to us today. This is Amos 5 starting in verse 21. The Lord says to the Israelites, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not 
accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Now here, through Amos' prophetic word, God tells the Israelites that their worship has been unacceptable. Now God's words probably seem a little harsh here, right? He says, I hate your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. The Lord's calling the Israelites' worship unacceptable. But why is God saying this? Well, let's dig a little deeper and find out. Amos was a prophet from Judah, the southern kingdom. But he was called by God to Israel, the northern kingdom, to proclaim a message of judgment to the Israelites. Now, at this time, which is in the middle of the 8th century BCE, the nation of Israel was in a season of great prosperity. Wealth and luxury abounded. However, most of the wealth was in the hands of a small number of people, and the majority of the people of Israel were in poverty and faced injustices daily. You see, Israel was God's chosen people, but this family of God had turned away from God and changed from oppressed to oppressor. Right? Remember, the Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt, and God rescued them from that situation. But now, the people of God had turned away from the Lord, and they were not acting in love and mercy and justice, even to their own people. So the prophet Amos travels north to Israel to proclaim this message of judgment. And throughout Amos, we get a very clear picture of exactly what Israel was doing wrong. The Israelites are accused of selling the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, of trampling on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and denying justice to the oppressed. See, these people had not been acting justly even towards their own people. In chapter 5, we read, There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes bribes, and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And so what we see here as Amos is calling these people of Israel out on their lack of faithful living, is that doing justice is deeply intertwined with living righteously. Doing justice is a part of faithful living. In Amos 5, we see that the Lord is grieved by Israel because they have turned away from justice and righteousness. The very beginning of chapter 5, Amos says this, He says, hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. He calls this a lament. This is a mournful word. God's heart is hurting because his people are not acting in ways that care for their community. Let's go back to our question that I asked earlier for a second. Why does God say that their worship is unacceptable? 
Well, it's because their worship is disconnected from the ways that they treat people. Right? The Lord says, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What we learn here is that the Israelites' worship rituals, their burnt offerings and their grain offerings, meant nothing to God because they were not producing a life that acted righteously towards the people around them. These people weren't going into their world and living out God's love in their daily lives. And the same is true for us. If our worship is disconnected from the way that we treat people, then we're missing the mark. Our religious practices, our Sunday morning rhythms, don't mean anything to God if all that they are are religious practices. See, the Israelites were giving offerings to the Lord just so they could check off a box in their righteousness to-do list. And if that's all that this is for us, then we need to hear these words today too. But please know (laughs) that this sermon is just as much, if not more so, God's word to me as it is God's word to you. I've struggled with what it means to really live out my faith, to put it into action. I think most of us have at one point or another. It's easy to stand in front of that ladder and say, well, I can't catch all that's falling in our world. But over the past year, I've noticed more than ever before how true it is that faith without deeds is dead, as it says in the book of James. When the pandemic hit, we saw rates of homelessness skyrocket as people lost their jobs. We saw addictions of all kinds rise as people struggled to cope. We saw suicide rates climb, poverty increased. We watched as politics destroyed relationships. And many of us, for the first time, began wrestling with what it means to have racial justice in our country. Over the last year and a half, we have been confronted with a lot of pain in our world. And I have to admit that at times I've been paralyzed by it all. There have been points where I've looked out into all that's happening, and I've wondered where God is. I've wondered where the church is. Perhaps I'm not alone in that wondering. So I've wrestled with those questions for quite a while now. And I'm still wrestling with some of them. But God keeps drawing me back to this vision of what his church is meant to be. And God's answer to my question, God, where are you? Is, I am in my people. If you're asking me where I am, God says to me, then perhaps you've lost yourself. If you're asking me where I am, then perhaps you don't have the eyes to see my people anymore. This is what God has been speaking to me. You see, our place in this world is to be a people that let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
I'm sure many of us have heard the words of Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Well, you see, if the God of justice, mercy, and compassion really lives in us, then we become people of justice and mercy and compassion to our world. I've recently reread one of my favorite books. It's called The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. And I want to share with you a story that's told in that book. It continually challenges me to live beyond religion and to actually offer my life in service to God's redemptive purposes. This is how the story goes. There are two guys who are talking to each other, and one of them says that he's got a question for God. And so his friend looks at him and says, well, why don't you ask God? And he tells him, well, my question is, God, why do you allow all this suffering and injustice in the world? And I'm scared to ask God that question. And his friend says, well, why are you scared? He shakes his head and he mutters, well, I'm afraid God's going to ask me the same question. So maybe when we ask God, where are you? God looks back at us and asks, well, where are you? In his book, Shane Claiborne goes on to say, over and over again, when I ask why all of these injustices are allowed to exist in the world, I can feel the spirit whisper to me, you tell me why we allow this to happen. You are my body, my hands, my feet. And that's the vision that God has for his church, that we would be his body, his hands, his feet. And that's a beautiful vision. But if you, maybe like me, take a big gulp after hearing that story, take a breath. Sit with that for a minute. But don't stay there, because this is not a guilt trip. This is not about all the stuff that we haven't done or all the opportunities we've missed to be Jesus to the world. But this is about what our place in this world is supposed to be. And this is about Jesus' hope for the world that brings restoration here and now, just as much as it brings restoration in heaven someday. Listen to these words from Matthew 25. Verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the day of the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will reply, 
Truly, I tell you, whenever you did one of these things for a brother or sister of mine, you did it for me. This is our place in the world, to be a community of people who live out the call to live love, to show mercy, and to act justly. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Sounds a little bit like Amos 5, huh? See, the Pharisees are checking all of their religious boxes, too. They're giving a tenth of their spices, but they aren't living out God's call for their lives. And again, we see that checking off our church to-do list isn't the whole picture of what Jesus calls us to do. We're called to a lifestyle of justice and mercy and faithfulness. In the book of James, later on in the New Testament, we continue to see this vision for the people of God to be people who take action to do good in the world. James 1.27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that God our Father accepts is to look after orphans and widows. Isn't that interesting? See, our religious practices don't mean very much to Jesus if they don't produce a life that goes and does love. If they don't produce a life where love is actually a verb and where the gospel is enacted every single day. In fact, Jesus was constantly disregarding Jewish practices so that he could do justice and mercy in the world. He healed on the Sabbath, which none of the religious leaders were happy about. He ate with sinners and he talked with prostitutes. And this made many of the religious elite angry. Now, I'm not saying that we should all stop coming to church. While Jesus did work outside of a lot of the Jewish customs, he also spent a significant amount of time in his father's house. But he didn't let his faith be confined to his religious customs, and he never let his religious practices prevent him from doing God's work in the world. So I'm not saying that what we do here is unimportant. It matters very much. But if we allow our faith to stop here, then we're living an incomplete picture of the gospel. You see, Amos' prophetic word of judgment is supposed to be this reorienting act. It's the call for the Israelites to turn back to God so that they begin living in this lifestyle that he calls us to. Multiple times in Amos 5, the Israelites are told to seek the Lord in order to live. In verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. Verse 14 says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. This book of Amos is all about reorientation. It's about drawing our eyes and our lives back to the Lord. 
And similarly, what we do here is also a process of reorienting. We gather intentionally to set our eyes on the Lord and to grow deeper in relationship with Jesus. Without a faith community surrounding us, it's really easy to just do our own thing and forget the life that God calls us to. It's really easy to just make our own path and forget the one that God has laid out for us. So we connect to the body of the believers to reorient ourselves, to learn from each other, and to remember what really matters, and to recall what our purpose is. So can we remember today that our place in this world is to be a people who live love, who serve the least of these among us, and who enact the gospel daily? But let's be real, we could admit that that's really hard work. What Jesus did was hard, and what Jesus calls us to do is hard. Jesus was in the business of restoring broken and hurting people, and that required him to spend a lot of time with broken and hurting people. You see, in order to be the people of God who live out justice and mercy, we have to spend time coming face to face with heartache. And I think oftentimes that's why we shy away from this call. It's not a very comfortable place there, is it? See, sitting back and settling for the, yeah, it's going to be great in heaven someday, is so much easier, hoping for that new heaven and that new earth, but not joining into God's work now, is way easier than participating in Jesus' restorative work. Because that requires us to practice empathy and to sit with people in the messy moments of life. Right? That's why Jesus weeps so many times in the gospel. We see this even in the death of Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus was Jesus' friend, and he died. And Jesus got there after he had died, and he weeps with Mary and Martha, Lazarus's two sisters. He sits with them in their pain, and he experiences it himself. And then, shortly after this, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Anybody else find that a little bit weird? Like, why didn't you just skip the tear fest and restore the guy to life? Well, I think we learn something really important here. God's restorative work isn't simply about finding a solution to a problem. But oftentimes, restoration starts by simply being with others in the midst of their hurt and letting them know that they're not alone. See, Jesus walks into the hurt, says to the hurting, I am with you. And that's where the restoration begins. Brene Brown, a renowned professor, speaker, and author, says that empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Empathy is hard, but it's part of our call to live out justice and mercy. This all starts with genuinely caring for and walking with the hurting in our communities. And man, am I grateful for a God who becomes vulnerable in order to connect with me and to connect with you. But this is hard to do. 
Living out the gospel is hard work, and it's okay to say that. The good news, though, is that we don't have to do it alone, and we aren't called to do it alone. If you think back to that trustful activity I mentioned earlier, it was so important that I had an entire team of people helping me catch whoever was falling. It took about eight of us to catch just one person. This gives us just a glimpse into the picture of what participating in God's restorative work is like. Participating in God's work in the world can only be done in community. And it might take an entire army of Jesus followers to catch just one fallen person or to address just one issue of injustice in our world. And you know what? That's a good thing because we weren't meant to do this alone. God calls us to be a people who do justice and who live out love. We can't do this alone. So I don't know what or who God is calling you to catch. But don't settle for the someday hope. It's a good hope, but it's only half of the gospel story. So don't allow yourself to leave your faith confined within the walls of this sanctuary. But ask God how you can be a part of his work in the world. And then start plugging into community and see how God can use you to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I have a prayer activity for us. I don't know if the slides have it up there. Um, so Pastor Mary is going to come and share communion with us in a moment. But I would just challenge you throughout this week to commit to praying for one of these three things. One, if you're not really sure what the heck God is calling you to do, that's cool. But commit to seeking the Lord and praying that he would reveal to you where he wants you to serve. You can hit the next slide. Or if you're really feeling like that practice of empathy is something that God might be calling you to, commit to praying that God would give you the eyes to see those who need your compassion and the courage to be vulnerable and enter that space with them. And if you know exactly where God needs you to serve, you can click the next slide. Just commit to praying that God would reveal to you a community where you can plug into that and begin serving. So Pastor Mary is gonna come up now, um, but just think about that this week as you go throughout throughout your week.